And children, you may be dismissed to Children's Church. Do have just a, a couple of other things you want to be praying about this morning. Um, as you take a look back on the windows of the parking lot side, you see Kirsten sitting there. She wishes she wasn't sitting there because she wishes she was uh, at home nursing the new baby to come. Um, that is going to happen very soon, we hope and pray. So I'm sure she would appreciate your prayers along those lines as well. Um, and uh, be thinking about how you might minister to them in the days to come as they uh, will be welcoming number, it's number 10, right, into the house. All right. Um, and then I do have a thank you note from the Beckleys. Dear friends at Calvary, thank you so much for the gift of $222.85 that we received in July. We have noticed these extra gifts on a regular basis and want to want you to know how much we appreciate your desire to help and encourage us in so many ways. We trust God has blessed your efforts for him this summer and that all the special events of the next months will touch many with his love. Thank you again for your love and encouragement, Ken and Sarah Beckley. All right. Continue to pray for the Beckleys in their ministry there in West Africa. All right, well, let's take our Bibles and open to a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture, at least section of Scripture, and that will be in the Psalms again this morning. Uh, we are going to look at uh, something else from the life of David. Last Sunday, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we were looking at one of the greatest struggles in David's life. We saw that he and his mighty men returned to Ziklag, which was their home, and they found everything burned and everyone gone. They were taken captive by a band of marauding Amalekites. Uh, so this morning we're going to look at a psalm whose setting is just before that in David's life. Okay, It's always interesting to, to read the psalms and then to try to figure out where they fit into uh, David's life or whoever wrote that particular psalm. This psalm was written by David, uh, and we, we understand that it comes from the area of 1 Samuel, uh, and we'll see in 1 Samuel um, 17 or 22, sorry, 1 Samuel 22, we find more details of what's happening in David's life here in this particular psalm. But as we look at this psalm, let's start off by looking at the title. Uh, take a look at it, and it says there, A Maskil of David when he was where? In a cave. Okay? And then it concludes with a prayer. So let's start with this word, Maskil. What is that word all about? Well, we can't really say for certain what the word means, but it's believed to be a musical term. So that kind of puts me out on the outer edges right off the bat, okay? Uh, it's a musical term. It's, it's, you know, it's sort of like that word selah. Okay, again, that's, it's a word nobody really can absolutely 100% say this is what it means, but we say that it's a musical term, it's a rest note maybe, we'll get into that a little bit uh, further in just a moment, but the word maskal, it's suggested that this word means a contemplation or something that leads to insight. Uh, it's, it's suggested that uh, it's something that means prudent. Okay, something that we, we okay, he's, he's giving us some insight, maybe even some personal insight from his own life. So we should take a look at it. We should figure out really what David is trying to get us or lead us into with this title. The word, we mentioned already the word Selah, 
And that also is a musical term, and it means to pause to carefully weigh the meaning of what we've just read or heard. Um, Lifting up our hearts in praise to God because of the truths that we just went through in this particular song or psalm or reading of scripture. It seems like these words were part of the worship or something that was done to aid God's people in worshiping him. Perhaps it's something like we do when we talk about the meaning and the importance of the songs that we sing here at Calvary Baptist Church. And, and you know, that's why it's so important that what we sing is actually uh, doctrinally sound. Songs that are, are kind of iffy, kind of on the edge, kind of not really doctrinally correct. Yeah, they might have a good tune. They might have a, 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 something that sticks in your head. But if the words aren't doctrinally sound, then we need to throw them out. Or at least maybe we change the words. We've been known to do that as well. Okay, so when we stop and we point out something in a song, it's not because we want to necessarily draw attention just to the song or the author of the song, but we want you to stop and reflect on the truth that it contains, uh, and, and the truth comes from, obviously, from God's word. So when we, we point that out, it's, uh, it's to enhance our time of worship and recognizing and knowing how great our God is. When we sing to our great God, it's not just because we like music, right? It's because we, it is part Part of our worship of our great God. Worship is not just singing. It's also teaching. Okay, and the, the song that we're looking at, the psalm that we're looking at this morning is a teaching or a, a, uh, an opportunity for David to expound on truths that he knows to be accurate and faithful in, in the character of our great God. That's why, as I say, the words are so very important and we often diligently think about them before, like some of you say, hey, how about singing this song or how about that song? And before it even is a consideration of bringing it to you as a congregation, to sing, uh, we go through it and we say, well, maybe not because, or yeah, that's a great song. Let's, let's sing that. Let's, let's introduce that. There's a whole bunch of other things that go to it that are beyond my ability. But, you know, when we, when we sing songs, we want them to be full of doctrinal truth that quiet our hearts and prepare us in our worship and receiving of the word of the message for the day. Um, so as, as David is introducing to us this psalm, Psalm 142, a prayer, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, being in a cave, not many people spend a lot of time in a cave, and we'll get into that this morning as well. But you know what? Even in the deepest, darkest places of your life, you should pause, you should stop, and you should worship our great God. This psalm, like 1 Samuel chapter 30 from last week, is written at a time in David's life where he was struggling with actually life itself. He was working through some problems, some struggles, some trouble that he was facing. This psalm takes place, as I said, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, where David had just fled to Achish, Achish um, the king of Gath, after going to Elimelech, the priest in the city of Nob. David went there because he didn't have any food and he didn't have a sword. Now, what is David without a sword, right? Um, he left in such a hurry. I remember uh, Saul tried to kill him. He took his spear and he, as David was playing his harp, he threw the spear at David and David narrowly escaped and was on the run for his life. And so he was, he was leaving town so quickly he didn't have time to go and pack supplies or anything like that. He just left. 
And the first place he thought of going to was the place where the priests were in the, in the city or the land of Nob. And he's there and he's talking to Elimelech. And Elimelech is, is ministering to David, encouraging him, strengthening him. He even let him take of the showbread that was there. Uh, now, you might know that that showbread was something that was reserved for offerings to God. And some people say, wow, David shouldn't have taken that showbread. Elimelech shouldn't have given it to him. But you know what? There wasn't, there wasn't any problem with that. Because what David was doing was obedience to God. And Elimelech was serving him and ministering to him at that time in his life. Okay? And so as we see what's going on here, there's a man named Doeg. And Doeg was actually Saul's chief shepherd guy. Okay, and, and you know, as, as somebody who's kind of working their way up through the ranks, Doeg wanted to gain favor with Saul, the king of Israel. And so Doeg is there, and he sees Saul talking to Ahimelech, and, and he sees Ahimelech ministering to David and giving him things, and maybe he even witnessed him giving David Goliath's sword, because that's what Ahimelech gave to him. It was given to, to the priest to keep as a, as a reminder of God's great deliverance of the people of Israel against Goliath, and, and Elimelech told David, you know, the, sword, the only sword I have here is the sword of Goliath, and who deserves it better than you? Okay? So David said, I will take it, and he went on. But Doeg was there, and here's what it says here. Doeg was, uh, was a nasty character. He was an evil man. He runs back to Saul, and he says, hey, Saul, you know what I saw? I saw David, and he was in the land of Nob, and he was talking. He was, he was hobnobbing it up with Elimelech, okay? And, and I saw Elimelech giving him things, and, and away he went. You know, that might be one of David's hiding spots, Okay, so um, Doag the Edomite, on Saul's command, he, mass- he went back to Nob and he massacred all the priests. And he didn't stop there. He included all of the priests' family. In fact, everybody who lived in the city of Nob, men, women, children, babies, livestock, 85 priests were killed on that day. And it completely wiped out Elimelech's family except for one son, Abiathar. And you know what? David heard about that. And David said, this is my fault. These, all these people died today because of me. If I wouldn't have gone there, if I wouldn't have stopped on the, on the way in my flight, uh, then they wouldn't have had this problem and Doeg wouldn't have come back and killed all these people. So David is now mourning the life of his friend, the priest Elimelech, and all of those who died at that day, on that day. He's it's weighing heavy on his heart. He's, he's mourning. He's distraught. And until the passage we looked at last week where we saw his family taken in captivity, Probably this is the lowest life, lowest point in David's life. And what comes out of that? Well, Psalm 142 comes out of that. Now, let me be upfront with you this morning. Um, some of this may sound a little bit familiar to you, especially if you appreciate Dr. David Jeremiah. Okay? Um, on one, of the, one of the benefits of having to get up early and go to Tractor Supply on Monday morning for a 6 o'clock shift is that on the way into Cortland, I get to listen to Dr. David Jeremiah at that very, very early hour in the morning. An, an hour in the morning when I'm not normally awake. 
Okay? But as I was listening on Monday morning, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah spoke from Psalm 142. And I was so blessed by what he said there that I thought I would share some of it with you as well. So I borrowed some of the main points of Dr. Jeremiah's outline. I want to tell you that and say, in case you say, man, you're stealing from Jeremiah. And I, I, I want you to know that I took some of it, but you know. I added to it as well, and I, I made my own uh, subpoints underneath it, and I wanted it to be something that would be fitting for our family here at Calvary Baptist Church. So we're going to look at Psalm 142 this morning. Would you stand together with me, and we'll read it together from the screen, the New King James Version of Psalm 142. The title, it says, A Plea for Relief from Persecutors, A Contemplation of David, A Prayer When He Was in the Cave. And then verse 1, read it together with me. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Let's ask God to bless our time together in his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you again for the privilege we have of gathering together. As we look around, we see that uh, there are several in our church family that are not able to be with us this morning. We ask that you would encourage them today, wherever they might be, minister to their needs, strengthen them. Uh, perhaps some are not well, perhaps some are on vacation, uh, traveling. We ask that you give them safety, that you would make it possible for them soon to join in again with us in fellowship and in the study of your word and the worship of you as the one true God. Uh, and now, Father, we ask that you would encourage us this morning as we look at this time in King David, or not yet King David's life, uh, when he is struggling. He is, he, was, he is just really battling with the circumstances of life. Um, and sometimes, Father, we can greatly identify with David in that situation. We ask that you would use your word this morning to minister to our hearts and meet us where we are and encourage us to become more like our Savior in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. As I referred earlier to the title this morning, we talked about this word masculine. Now, let's talk about for a moment where David was when he wrote this psalm. It says that it's a masculine of David when he was in a cave. What was the name of the cave? Anybody want to venture to guess? Abdulam. But really, it was the cave of discouragement. Or the cave of despair, okay? David was in this place, in this place, Adullam. It's a huge cave, okay? Just the opening of the cave is like 40 feet wide by 20 feet high, 
Okay, and then he goes in there, and we'll see later on that there's anywhere from four to six hundred men who join him inside this cave. Okay, so this is a massive cave, but it's for David and many of those that were with him, it's a cave that is full of discouragement, discontent, and, and unhappiness. It's this cave where David first sets out to be by himself. He wanted to have, if you will, a little bit of a pity party for himself. Woe is me. Look at me, God. Things are so bad in my life. Why are you letting things get this way in my life? But God had different plans for David in the cave of Adullam on that day and for many, many uh, months afterwards. David was there, uh, but it turns out that soon after his arrival, God sent others to him. Who did he send? Well, let me, let me take you to 1 Samuel chapter 22. It explains the very situation that David is in. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. It says, David therefore departed from there, that's Nob, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now listen to this part. Verse 2, it says, And everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now David went there to be alone. Why? Because he was discouraged and he was discontent. What's the worst thing that can happen to you when you are discouraged? To be alone or to be surrounded by other people who are also discouraged. Right? I mean, you went there hopefully to, to have some quiet time and to work through some things and to get things back on track in your life so you can be uh, content with wherever God has placed you. But now he's surrounded by men who are what? Discouraged, in debt, or discouraged, debted, and discontent. The three D's. Okay, um, we always knew growing up in school that D's were bad things, right? Nobody wanted to get D's on the report card. And so here's David surrounded by a bunch of people who are categorized into these three D's. And you thought that Robin Hood came into existence in Nottingham Forest in the 15th century, right? This sounds like to me that David is the forerunner or the first Robin Hood, if you will, because who followed Robin Hood? Those who were in debt, those who were discouraged, and those who were discontent. All right? They wanted to make some changes, although they didn't go about it the same way David did. But David was a man who was trying to figure out what God wanted him to do, and he finds himself now the leader of it, and not just the leader of a couple men like, like Robin Hood was, but he's got 400 men now who have come to him, and they're looking to him to be their leader. He doesn't really want that position at this point in his life. He wants to be by himself. But as Jim said, being by yourself is not necessarily the best place to be. Okay, and we'll get into that. We'll look at David's being alone in just a moment here. Now that you have the setting for Psalm 142, let's jump into the text. And first of all, as we read through Psalm 142, we saw that David is battling with discouragement. David is a man who is just, his life is not where he expected it to be at this point. You know, there are people who, who, when they are very young in life, they plan out what their life is going to look like. 
This is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to do it. All those kinds of things. And, and they, they, are, they are driven, they are determined to make those things happen. Now, add to that that David was, he started out as a shepherd boy, right? And then along comes this guy named Samuel. And Samuel comes to him, and he, after going through all of David's family, Samuel says, is there not one more? Surely there must be one more, because I haven't found the next king in these men here. So, so, so Jesse says, well, there is one more. He's, he's the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. Surely it can't be him. He's not, he's not king material. We know that. We all know that. Bring him here. And so David comes in, and he meets with Jesse, or he meets with, with Samuel, and Samuel hears from the Lord, and the Lord says, this is the one. Get out your flask, anoint him with oil, because God doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the inside, he looks on the heart, and David has a heart after my heart, and I want David to be the next king of Israel. So Jesse, his son, is going to become the next king of Israel. Samuel told David that. So David is now thinking, man, life is going to be grand, I'm going to be the king. Although when he's sitting in this cave, he probably doesn't feel much like the king. He's probably beginning to wonder, is it going to happen? Am I really going to be the king? Because right now, my life is on the, on the line. Saul is out to get me. He wants me dead. And Saul had all of the resources of the nation of Israel at his disposal to make that happen. So David is discontent. He just found out that 85 priests were killed because he stopped in the city of Nob and had a conversation and took some supplies from Elimelech. Man, life was tough. Life was difficult. He was discouraged. And so as we think about this discouragement, I want to think about these three things that, or four things that prompted David's discouragement. And we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at them, but we are going to find out what it was that caused him to be discouraged. And then we're going to get to the second point of the message this morning and talk about how we defeat that discouragement, okay? And they're, they're mixed right along together. So we're going to look at a couple of these verses, and then we're going to come back and look at them again. Because in the verses are not only the problem, but the solution to the problem as well. So in verse 3, we see that David was disoriented. He said, my spirit faints within me. My spirit faints within me. Within me. You know, if you're extremely healthy and you're fit and you're active and you're, you're, everything is going right in your body, you don't faint. Okay? David says, my spirit faints within me. This wasn't the only time David said this. Over in Psalm 77, verse 3, he says, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Just too much happening in my life that I don't understand, that I don't like, that I really wish wasn't happening. Those kinds of things have the tendency to cause us to be overwhelmed or for our spirit to faint or become weak within us. In Psalm 143, the very next Psalm, verse 4, David says, Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. My heart is breaking. My heart is, is ready to cease. It's ready to fall apart. And then later on in that same psalm, he mentions it again, that his heart is just breaking. It's heavy. It's hard. It's hard to understand why these things are happening in my life. God, I need your wisdom. Now, if we're not careful, when we don't know where we are or which way to turn, it can lead to dark days in our lives. 
It can lead to days that are very difficult to work through and challenging at best. The key is not to let these thoughts control or dominate our, our mind. We need to change our focus. We need to not focus on the situations that we find ourselves in. We need to not focus on the difficulties that we are facing. Where do we focus instead? Well, we focus on our great God, and we'll get into that in the second part of our message this morning. But we have to be careful not to let these thoughts and these, these depressing ideas kind of control our mind, because that's what Satan wants to do. You, you, you understand that, right? Satan knows that he can't take your salvation away from you. But you know what Satan's next best plan is for you? To make you ineffective in the Christian life. If he can sidetrack you, if he can discourage you, if he can get you to think the woe is me and my life is worthless and you're not doing anything to serve the Lord, he's pretty content with that. He's, he's happy to have you out of the game plan, on the sidelines, if you will. So not only was David disoriented, but he also felt deserted in verse 4. Remember, David is in a cave with anywhere from 400 to 600 men. These are fighting men. These are valiant men. But they're also men who have problems of their own. And they've gathered around David because they were spiritually and emotionally drained. He's surrounded by all these men with all of these problems. Companions, if you will. Comrades, if you will. But this is David's assessment. I look to my right and I see there is none who takes notice of me. Among those 400 men, do you know what those 400 men are really there for? They're not really there for David's leadership. They're just there because they don't like Saul's leadership. (laughs) Ever been there? You see, they're not there because they've come to encourage David or anyone else for that matter. They're there because they think that they can stir people up and get people to go in the direction they want them to go, which is to get rid of the current king. That's their goal. And David looks around and he says, there's no one here who has any ounce of care for me, no concern. No one sees the struggles that I am facing at this moment. He also says that there is no refuge that remains to me. There is no one that I can go to for encouragement. There is no one that I can go to that says, hey, what can we do to help you, David? Everybody's looking at him. And you know what? That's often the way it seems. When we are down, Satan gets us to think that we are all on our own. There was another godly man, prophet, by the name of Elijah. When God was going to send Elijah to do the countdown on Carmel. We looked at that when we were looking at the characters of, of Scripture. Uh, and, and what did Elijah say to God? God, man, why is that? Uh, there's nobody left. I'm all on my own. I'm all by myself. Nobody else wants to serve you, God. Nobody else wants to live for you. Everybody else is worshiping that stupid idol Baal. And God said to Elijah, just slow down a little bit there and Listen. I have 750 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not on your own. Don't believe that lie from Satan. 
Can I tell you this morning, if you're sitting here or if you're listening on the, on the live stream and you think you're facing all these struggles, all these problems, all these difficulties, all on your own, don't believe it. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan wants to drag you out and get you out of your, your, your service to the one true God. David goes on, he says, no one cares for my soul. Everyone here wants me to care for them, but who's going to care for me? That was David's question. His answer, his perceived answer is, no one's going to care for me. We may feel as though we're all alone, but we know that that is not true. David's son penned these words over in Proverbs 18 and verse 24. And I think David, I'm sure David knew that he wasn't really all alone. But in Proverbs 18 and 24, Solomon wrote these words. He probably learned them from his father. He says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know who that friend is, right? That friend is our God, Jehovah. He sticks closer than, than, his, than any brother that you could have. Now, my brothers are pretty close. We had, got the opportunity to spend some time together uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we had a good time. But as, as close as we are as brothers, my God is closer to me and looks out for me better. Because what? My God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's, he's all-caring. He, he is the one true God, the creator of the universe. And I'm thankful that my God is looking out for me. If David were worshiping God today, perhaps he would sing this Hope Darce song. Uh, here's just, just some of the words to her song. It says, I'll, I never walk alone. If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have doubted you. The you is God. I wish I could tell my younger self just to have faith. There's so many mountains you have moved, valleys you have led me through, and it's only by your grace I'm standing here today. I'm a witness to your faithfulness. In every storm, in every step, looking back, never once did you let me go. And no matter what the future holds, you'll work it out for my good. I know you are faithful, and I never walk alone. What great words. Maybe inspired by the, the poem, Footprints in the Sand. You've all seen that where there's a picture of a beach and, and the words of the poem are on that picture. And, and it's, God, in the deepest, darkest struggles of my life, all those times when I felt I was alone, I look back and I see only one set of footprints in the sand. Why is it that I was alone? And the response was, no, you weren't alone. It was during those difficult times that I carried you. That's why you only saw one set of footprints because I was caring, I was there with you, I was helping you through those difficult times. I never walk alone, you never walk alone. When we know Christ as our Savior, we never walk alone. We are never alone, and don't ever believe that lie from Satan that he wants to throw at you when you're in those deep, dark, depressed states. Speaking of depression, that's where we see David is in verse 6. He became depressed. This is the natural result if we let our emotions control us. Can I tell you that? And don't get mad at me. But you know, emotions are, 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 are difficult things. 
And God gave us emotions. They can be very, very good things. But if we let emotions run our lives, they tend to get us into some difficult places, difficult spots. Especially when our emotions aren't joyful and and full of happiness. If we tend to dwell on those, we end up being in a a place where we doubt the goodness of our great God. Some have asked the question, can a Christian really be depressed? And some people have responded, no, if you're really a Christian, you can't be depressed. Well, I don't believe that. I don't. Because there's some pretty godly people in the pages of Scripture that were depressed at times in their lives. We look at David. Why do you think we are so drawn to the Psalms? Because David wrote most of them, and David was a man who, as we read the accounts of his life, we often find that he was depressed. A man after God's own heart, for sure, but a man who, when he didn't have his focus where it needed to be on the one true God, he found himself in depressed states. And he wrote about it. He journaled, if you will, in the Psalms about his depression. There's another guy by the name of Moses who often found himself depressed. And you might say, well, I certainly can understand that. After all, he was leading the Israelites, right? Every time he got to a place where he thought things were moving in the right direction, they turned around and said, oh, man, God, this is all your fault. I don't, you know, we've all seen the pictures of Moses and the long hair and the long beard. I'm I'm wondering, though, if he really had long hair, because I think most of the time he's pulling it out. These people, God, what is wrong with them? He was depressed. There's another guy more current than Moses. Kind of probably looked a little bit like him if you look at the pictures of him. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Battled with depression. He wrote books, lots and lots and lots and lots of books. He wrote lectures to my students, and there's two chapters in that called the, 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 fa- the Fainting Fits of the Preacher. <laughs> Those were when he was depressed and how he dealt with his depression. Martin Luther. Can I tell you what? Lots of pastors get to that point of being depressed, or very close to it. David Jeremiah, in his message, when he was speaking on Psalm 142, he said, I don't know if I've ever technically been depressed, but I think I've been close to it. You see, when we let those discouraging thoughts and and, and, and emotions run away with us, we tend to find ourselves in these kinds of settings. David said, I am brought very low. That, that idea of being very low in the Hebrew, it, it, it's the word indentation. Sometimes the things in life dent us. <laughs> I remember the summer we worked at camp after we got married. Barb's mom and dad just bought a new car, a Ford Escort. Now, they weren't wealthy people. That's why they bought an Escort, okay? Um, but they had this Escort, and it was sitting in their parking spot. Nobody else is supposed to be around, you know, park in that parking spot. So the car is set in the parking spot, and, and they're in there working. And uh, there were some kids that were horsing around, and uh, somebody started chasing this one camper. And actually, I think it was a guy from a, uh, um, a traveling school team. And he went to move away, and his feet slid, and his hip went right into the, the backside of the car. 
put a big dent in their car. And it's, uh uh-oh, somebody's got to go tell the bells. It was me. (laughs) I got to go tell them. And, And her mom was very discouraged. We just got this car, haven't had it a week. And, and now there's a big dent in it. So I said, well, let's try something. So I went in and got a plunger. Got the plunger all wet, stuck it on the car, and popped it out. Most of it. There was still a little crease there. But it wasn't a big dent. But that indentation caused great distress for a period of time. That's the idea of being depressed, being stressed out over the activities of life and the events of life that they dent us in. David knew where to go when he was dented. Turns his focus back to God and he seeks deliverance from him and him only. We'll get to that in a moment. But we also see in verses 6 and 7 that David was emotionally defeated. If we allow these dark thoughts to control us, Defeat is surely the result. David describes it as being imprisoned. Most prisoners long to be set free. Those who are depressed do not need to stay in that state of depression. There is hope and there is deliverance. And David knew about it and David experienced it. Would you like to know what David did about his denting in his depression? Well, we're going there next. We see David's deliverance. We've worked our way through the text and now we're going to go back to the beginning of the text, and we're going to see that intertwined with his discouragement are the truths of deliverance. And Dr. Jeremiah made this statement in his message from Psalm 142. Listen to what he said. He says, When incarcerated by troubles and feeling like there is no way out, at this very low point in his life, and if you want to know how low it was, take a look at verse 4 where he says, I look to the right and, and I see that there is no one who takes notice of me, no one to take refuge in, and... No one who cares for me. And David Jeremiah goes on, he says, But thank God he doesn't stay there. When he was at his lowest point in his life, he went through this pattern that all of us can follow when we get into the cave of discouragement. And then he says this, he says, We must listen with our inner ear to the word of God. Where is our comfort? Where is our solace? It's in the Word of God. We must listen to what the Word of God says to us. It is the Word of God and the God of the Word that is able to deliver us from even the deepest, darkest, discouraging days that we face. So what's this journey look like to getting out of deliverance? Well, the path of deliverance starts with verbalizing our problems to the Lord. Telling God what is going on in our lives. And you and I both know that we don't have to tell God what's going on because God doesn't know, right? God knows everything. God knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what he's going to do to lead us out of that if we allow him to lead us out. Sometimes we like to stay there, though, for a while. And we, when we're not in that state, we ask ourselves, we scratch our head, we say, why would anybody want to stay there? But that's because Satan's got a grip on us and he's not letting us really go. And and as long as we let him keep that grip, he's happy to hold us back there. Because our focus is not really where it needs to be. And how do we get our focus where it needs to be? Well, David says, well, Jeremiah, 
made a comment that we should verbalize our problems to the Lord. Did David do that? Well, verse 1 says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. Verse 5 says, I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Verse 6, he says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Listen, there's something about talking to God about our problems. When we are discouraged, the first thing we need to do is to tell God what is on our heart and in our mind. Let God know how discouraged you are. Let God know what you're battling with. What it is that you think is causing this discouragement in your heart and in your life. Rehearse the, the, the things that brought you to this point in your life. You know that song, take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there? That's what you need to do. You need to verbalize your problems to God. When we, and then when we verbalize our problems to God, we rehearse the truths that we know about God. That's what David did. In, day, in verse 1, David found comfort in knowing that God is a God of mercy. God's there. He wants to give you his hand. He wants to pull you up. He wants to get you on the rock that is only him. And that's where your trust and your faith is. Verse 5, we're reminded by David that our God is our refuge. My mom's favorite verse is Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. And it says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. When we are discouraged, when we are, when we are struggling, and we're telling God what's going on in our life and how we're struggling, God is saying, let me bring you to the refuge. Come to me, because I will give you strength. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in those troublesome times. And you may be wondering, what good does it do to tell God about my problems? Well, first and foremost, God tells us to tell him about our problems. That's why you tell him. Because he wants us to know that we're not walking alone. He wants us to know that he is there for us. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. He said, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. Remember that chorus I just said to you? Take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there. Leave it there. Leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you trust and never doubt, he will surely bring you out. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. You know what? Oftentimes we take our burden to the Lord we take our burdens and we give them to God. And, oh, we pick them up and we take them right back. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. You don't have to take it back. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. I don't see anything in Peter's writings that tell us to go back and pick it up and take it back home again with us. Leave it there. We also see that David visualized his problems to God. He visualized them. He says, I pour out my complaints before him. I declare before him my trouble. That's in verse 2. 
The idea of pouring out your complaint, it's seen as in rolling out your scroll. Now, we don't use scrolls today, but can you imagine when you go into, uh, if you had a, a, a let's, let's imagine in today's kind of thought life, we're, we're buying a house, we're selling a house. The deed, the contract, all of that kind of stuff, it's on a scroll. And you got it all written out, and you know who you're selling it to, and all the agreements, all the terms, and, and, and this is, this is going to be excluded, and that's going to be excluded, and, and whatever and whatever. So you roll out this scroll, and it's feet long. David says, I roll out my scroll of complaints to the one who can do something about it. To my God. I don't know how long his scroll was. Imagine it was pretty long because he had 400 men that were also dumping all their problems on him. God, I, I need you to know. I need to know that you know. And if I'm telling you what they are, then I know that you know what my problems are. We take the scroll, we roll it out before God, and we say, God, I'm going to leave this with you. I'm going to put it at your throne, and I'm going to trust you because you are a good God. You are a God who loves me. You are a God who wants what is best for me. David's not just talking about grocery listing his trouble. It's more the idea of giving his problems to the one who can actually deal with them. And then, as he gives these troubles to his God, he praises God for how God will deliver him from the troubles. That's what he's doing. He's absolutely confident that the one he's taking his scroll to is the one who can make the problems go away or give him the wisdom and the strength and the ability to deal with them, whatever they might be. He visualized his problems to God. And then we see that David verified the presence of the Lord. If you were listening on Monday or Tuesday, this was not part of Jeremiah's point. He verified the presence of the Lord. Verse 3 says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. I don't know where I'm going, God. I don't know how I'm going to get where I need to get. But God, you know the way. Now we've talked about David's fainting. And usually when a person faints, it's because they're weak and they're weary. But even though David didn't have the strength to keep going, he didn't know how he was going to take the next step forward. He knew that the Lord knew his way. And he knew that God knew what was best for him. I think David probably knew this because his son believed it as well. We're going to take another look at another verse in Proverbs. You know it. You've probably memorized it. It might have been one of the very first verses you memorized. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding or your own ways or your own strength, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And, and you know what? Why is he making your path straight? Because you need to keep going down the path. You can't stop and stay where you are. You can't faint there forever. You need to keep going. David verified the presence of the Lord. And not only did he verify the presence of the Lord, but he knew that the Lord would help him and give him the strength to get up and keep going. When we were growing up, we sang a song at camp and in children's church and in Sunday school. The words of the song go like this. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. 
All I have to do is follow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. The second part goes like this. Strength for today is mine all the way and all that I need for tomorrow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. You know what? My Lord knows the way out of the cave just as much as he knows the way through the wilderness. That cave of despair, that cave of discouragement, that cave of depression that we might find ourselves in, God knows the way out of that cave. And then David says, my vitality was renewed when I reminded myself of God's provision. David's vitality was renewed when he thought about the provision of God. Verse 5 says, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You see, the fact that God is a refuge for his children is a common theme, not only in the Psalms, but throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. In Psalm 46, 1, we read, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. In Psalm 91, 2, we see, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place. Psalm 71, 13. Verse 3 says, Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have, given, my, you have g- given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And Jeremiah, oh, what a name he had. Jeremiah the weeping prophet. But even in his weeping, in chapter 16, verse 19, he knew the fact that God was his refuge. He said, oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the days of distress. When you need a place to be, God is there for you. Listen to how North Point Inside Out puts it to music today. The song is called, Death Was Arrested. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a a ransom you faithfully bore. You canceled my debt. You called me as friend when death was arrested and my life began. This is why it all happened. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Wow. We don't have to stay in that cave of despair, in that pit of depression. This, my friends, is the portion in the land of the living that David is talking about. He says there, uh, you have given me a place in the land of the living. He's not talking about heaven there. 
He's talking about in the here and now. Right here as I'm living in this state that I find myself in, when I stop and think about all you have done, all you have provided, all you have given, all you are doing in my life, I'm in the land of the living. And I can continue to go on and I can serve you. You see, David is praising God for his care and his provision in the here and now, not in the future of the glory of heaven. Do it now because God has allowed you to do it. And then we close with the idea of David's victory and it resulted in praise in verse 7. As this psalm wraps up, we see that David is no longer discouraged. His spirit has been revived and he's singing his praises to, the God, to, his, to his God, to the one true God. His faith is restored. He is confident that God will deliver him and allow him to be surrounded again with other righteous people. Not the deaded, not the distressed, not the discontented, but with righteous people. And he, God may very well take those discouraged, indebted, and discontented people and turn them into the righteous people who will walk through the valleys with you. That's what family is all about. So David begins to sing the praises and and begins to glorify God for the deliverance that only God can give and only God can bring. The title of the message this morning is God is Listening. Can I remind you that he is indeed listening? He was waiting for David to cry out to him, and David did. He cried out from his cave of despair. He cried out, and God heard him. He sought deliverance from the one who alone can bring such deliverance from the depressions and the discouragements of life. He followed a pattern that any one of us can follow. That, That pattern was verbalize your problems to God. And it wasn't for David that he verbalized the problems, but it was for himself. He told God what his problems was, and he knew that God could deal with them. Visualize your problems to God. Pour them out before an almighty God who has the power and the ability to roll up your scroll and hand it back to you and say, It's all cared for. Don't worry about it. Verify the presence of God in your life. He's never left you. You never walk alone. Never in your past, since you know Christ is your Savior, and never in your future will you ever walk alone. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And then he has this idea of vitality and vibrancy. It's real. And when we understand that God gives that to us, we rejoice in what God has provided. And then when we see God's faithfulness through our difficulties and through the struggles that we have in life, we, we see that victory that he's given to us, victory over despair. Then we continue praising and worshiping our great God. Let's remember that in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our struggles, whatever they might be, that God has not designed us to be depressed but rather he has made us to thrive. As David worked his way through each of those steps in overcoming the depression and the despair, he pointed out, as Dr. Jeremiah said, the key was listening with your inner ear to the word of God. You know why we listen to the word of God? Because it's full of the truths about our great God. And when we're focusing on the truths that we find in this book, It brings us out of despair. Why? Because it gives us hope. 
And it's the only thing that can really provide us with continued ultimate hope. What's the, what's the result of that hope? That's becoming like Jesus. The day we see his face. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. You know each one sitting in this room. You know each one listening online, watching online. You know if we are in or close to that pit of despair. Father, would you help us to listen with our inner ear to the word of God and to let the word of God lead us out of that despair, that discouragement, whatever it might be that's causing us to be there. Help us to remember that you are greater than whatever our problem might be. Father, if you choose not to take the problem away, we claim the promise that you are with us and will help us walk through those struggles to the very end and see your faithfulness and look back and say, what a mighty God I serve. I'm thankful for your deliverance. Father, help us to be individuals who don't stay there long in the pit of despair, but we, we find ourselves rejoicing in who you are and your goodness to us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.